we are back we sometimes do obituaries in this part of the program and although uh, we do note with sadness the passing of betty ford the former first lady has been covered pretty well in the press and i think i'd like to focus in and instead on someone who passed away in april who maybe you didn't hear about gene bartik a talented mathematician and one of the pioneers of programming noted obituaries when the electronic numerical integrator and computer ENIAC was unveiled in 1946. It was hailed as a miraculous machine capable of precisely calculating trajectory for artillery shells. The press coverage on it focused on the hardware and the men who built it, which, ignoring the women who programmed it. It was noted the magic of ENIAC lay largely in its software, and much of it was written by Jean Jennings Bardick, who was recognized only toward the end of her life as a programming pioneer. She was the sole math major in her class at Northwestern Missouri State Teachers College. In 1945, one of her instructors spotted an advertisement in a math journal announcing that the Army was recruiting talented mathematicians for a project in Philadelphia. Bardic applied, and in Philadelphia she joined an all-female team which was tasked with setting up, quote-unquote, ENIAC, which, which was then portrayed as the prosaic business of plugging in electrical connections. In fact... She was converting mathematical calculations in electrical impulses that were, which were decipherable by the machine and which did require extensive mathematical facility. In fact, the war ended before the machine was put into service, but this was one of the original pioneering computers that led to uh, our, our desktop, uh, laptop, and smartphones of today. I want to note, uh, by way of a teaser, that I had the chance to talked to some mathematicians in the Bay Area, or at least one mathematician of the female persuasion in particular last week. She had some very interesting tales about some breakthroughs that may take place in math in the future, and we're going to talk about that in the fall, I hope. Yeah, you may have noted that we've taken a dim view of how math is taught in this country, and although I'm not backing away from that stance, I do note that uh, there's a lot about math I don't know, uh, I never denied its usefulness and that uh, these intriguing new developments are something that we're going to have a hard time not talking about. So um, we'll do that probably in about November. In the few minutes we have left, we want to note sadly that uh, the last shuttle was launched this week. Of course, the shuttle never was a very good spacecraft. It was sort of, I think, Richard Nixon's revenge. <laughs> but um, the last shuttle has been put up. There will be no more. And... Uh, President Obama's moving away from uh, efforts to move men into space is, uh, on the one hand, logical. On the other hand, a terrible development. Our position on this program is that the defense industry is going to get the money anyway. And if you can spend it on putting astronauts on Mars and the moon, well, at least nobody dies. I was rather disgusted by the point-counterpoint in the Sacramento Bee asking what does the future hold for U.S. space exploration by associate editor Foon Ree, whose smoking habits we were questioning early on the program. 
Funri writes, not to be a party pooper, but we have to balance space exploration, NASA's annual budget's nearly $19 billion, with more down-to-earth basic needs. I'm not saying we have to put on our green eye shades and make sure we get a payoff of every dollar NASA gets. I do think we have to be more realistic about that trade-off. And if that means fewer kids dream of becoming astronauts, I'm okay with that. Well, I, I'm not sure that I'm okay with that. If we put people on asteroids and the moon and Mars... We're giving money to the same industries that are getting it anyway. And $19 billion, that, that is chump change. The same industries are getting paid that on a monthly basis for what's going on in Afghanistan and Iraq. It's horrifying to contemplate that we may be at the end of an era when it comes to putting uh, people into space. Although it was curious to hear General Chuck Yeager talk out at McClellan Air Force Base uh, uh, last month talking about how he thought uh, NASA did a hell of a good job in putting robots up there, but when they got people involved, well, their bureaucracy wasn't so good. But I want to talk about the deficit being raised and how that's an excuse to kill wolves, or not, as the case may be, but not today. We want to talk about what's going on with Rupert Murdoch's antics over in the UK, uh, but uh, not today. I want to make one final mention of Another editorial that was in the Sacramento Bee about how Barack Obama is apparently on the verge of caving on fuel efficiency standards. What else has he not done? He can't seem to end the war in Afghanistan. He uh, is reneging on our space commitments. And now he's, you know, he he may not want to up the uh, fuel efficiency standards for many years. Noted the B, as Obama starts to mount a 2012 re-election campaign, there are disturbing signs he may cave on fuel economy standards to placate Detroit and improve his chances to win Michigan and some other states in the general election. We'll continue to follow this depressing story as well. But we've got just about five minutes left, and I think what we'll do is uh, do just a bit of politics here. We've been complimenting the excellent work done in Vanity Fair over the past few years. In some ways, uh, Vanity Fair has become America's leading political journal, which is a pretty sad commentary. But uh, in the current issue, there is an article I've been waiting for for some time. Well, at least for someone to do an article on the subject of the true links between the 9-11 attacks, Osama bin Laden, and the powers that be in Saudi Arabia. The well-regarded investigative journalist Anthony Summers, assisted by Robin Swan, has a new book out on this topic. It is excerpted at great length in Vanity Fair. And I think that we should take a minute and talk about it. We've mentioned on this program, and you are no doubt aware, dear listener, that there's kind of a special relationship between U.S. oil companies slash the U.S. government and the oil fields of Saudi Arabia and the House of Saud. Until the Saud family became preeminent in the country, it used to be known as Arabia. It was oilmen from the United States who set up the kingdom as it, uh, as it presently exists. And there is indeed a kind of a special relationship, but uh, how special needs to be examined. As you may be aware, 15 of the 19 hijackers on September 11th were Saudi. And while it was noted from the get-go that uh, there were strong links between the attacks and a certain foreign government, the uh, powers that be in the Bush administration and now the Obama administration have always been rather coy about which country they were talking about. But I'll give you a hint, dear listener. It was not Iraq, the country that got uh, blamed by Team Bush as having an involvement in spite of never producing any evidence to that effect. 
that, of course, has been denounced by everyone. Iran was mentioned by some, but it appears the only thing the Iranians did was let some uh, terrorists pass through Iran without stopping them. And that brings us to the logical candidate, Saudi Arabia. According to Anthony Summers, there's excellent uh, evidence based on sworn statements after 9-11 from the Taliban intelligence chief that the chief of Saudi Arabia's general intelligence department, the GID, known as Prince Turkey, cut a deal with Osama bin Laden to leave the kingdom alone. In fact, starting in 1995, substantial sums of protection money were paid. But you may have seen from Fahrenheit 911, one of Michael Moore's better efforts, how Prince Bandar and other Saudi royals were uh, able to do what they needed to do to leave the country right after 9-11. Some of the only planes that were flying, in fact, in the United States during that three-day interim were flying Saudi royals around. But uh, here's some bombshells from the article. Prince Bandar, who was so close to the Bush family they called him Bandar Bush, had hinted right after 9-11 that both the U.S. and Saudi intelligence services had known more about the hijackers in advance than they were publicly admitting. But notes Anthony Summers, in 2007, however, by which time he'd risen to become national security advisor to former Crown Prince and now King Abdullah, Bandar said Saudi security had been actively following the movements of most of the terrorists with precision. If U.S. security authorities had engaged their Saudi counterparts in a serious, incredible manner, in my opinion, we would have avoided what happened. And no, why this isn't page one news in America, I, I can't tell you. Well, maybe I can tell you. People like the CIA are denying this and saying, oh, this is, this is a fabrication. But notes Anthony Summers, Prince Turkey had long since come out with an allegation similar to Bandar's, but far more specific. He said in late 1999 and early 2000, just before the first of two future 9-11 hijackers reached the United States, his staff had informed the CIA that both men were terrorists. What we told them, he said, was these people were on our watch list from previous activities of al-Qaeda in both the East Africa embassy bombings and attempts to smuggle arms into the kingdom. CIA spokesmen are denying that claim as well. What's really interesting is that the 9-11 report contained a 28-page segment titled Finding Discussion and Narrative Regarding Certain Sensitive National Security Manners. Well, that entire 28 pages was redacted on the orders of President Bush. Those who have read that censored section later told the LA Times that it described very direct, very specific links with Saudi officials, links that cannot be passed off as rogue, isolated, or coincidental. It is worth noting that uh, three Saudi princes who uh, were thought to perhaps be uh, under some suspicion all mysteriously died uh, within a week of each other last year. One from a heart attack following abdominal surgery at age 43. The other reportedly in a car accident. And my favorite, the third prince, was said to have died of thirst. Interesting, when uh, Barack Obama became president, he met with some of the uh, survivors from 9-11 and promised them that that 28 pages would be released. Like most of Obama's promises, we're still waiting. But noted Anthony Summers, one of the officials who was privy to those 28 pages before they were ordered removed, said that 
If the 28 pages were to be made public, I have no question that the entire relationship with Saudi Arabia would change overnight. This, folks, is something we need to know more about. We're going to do what we can to bring Anthony Summers on this program. And uh, we actually have a fighting shot to get him. I don't, I don't know Mr. Summers, but I know people that do. And uh, we're going to see what we can to bring him on this program later this summer. But that about wraps it up for today's show. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. Well, I'm about to get upset Watching my TV Checking out the news Until my eyeballs fail to see I mean to say that every day Is just another rotten mess And when it's gonna change, my friend Is anybody's guess So I'm watching and I'm waiting Hoping for the best Even think I'll go to prayer Every time I hear them saying That there's no way to delay That trouble coming every day No way to delay That trouble coming every day Wednesday I watched the riot, I seen the cops out on the street Watched them throwing rocks and stuff and choking in the heat Listened to reports about the whiskey passing around Seen the smoke and fire and the market burning down Watched while everybody on your street would take a turn The stomping, smashing, bashing, crashing, slashing, busting, burn And I'm watching it, I'm waiting